The words that I'd like to draw your attention to are found in the book of Job. We'll be looking at Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, For roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only don't put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. And naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
Lord, even as we read this text, we're humbled. Because it's so hard to fathom what Job lost. Lord, it's, it's hard to fathom any man responding with such worship after such a grievous loss. And it's hard to understand Your workings in this world. Lord, not just in this text, but we acknowledge our ignorance of why You've allowed so much to happen in the world. Lord, we confess we don't understand why You've directed our lives the way You have. Why You've blessed us in some of the ways You have and why You have hurt us or at least allowed us to be hurt in the way that You have. And so, Lord, we come asking for wisdom because we want to be able to respond like Job. And not just because we know it's right, but because we believe everything that He believed. We ask that You would increase our wisdom as we study this book over the weeks ahead and that You would ground our faith solidly in Your Word in a confident knowledge of who You are. And we ask that You would do so even this morning. In Christ's name we pray. In 1913, Eleanor H. Porter wrote a children's book about an orphaned little girl who went to live with her Aunt Polly. Her rigid aunt affected her to the extent that Pollyanna, which was the girl's name, wanted to affect her to have a more positive outlook on life and everybody else around her. And so she herself sought to be infusively, effusively optimistic, encouraging those around to have a a positive attitude and declaring that it will make all the difference if you just maintain a positive attitude. And that is often how many people think Christianity is, or at least what Christianity teaches. A naive religion that simply encourages people to put on a happy face and to look for a silver lining when they face any dark cloud. But the Bible offers really no such Pollyanna expectations for Christians. In Acts 14.22, Paul expressly taught new converts that through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he told the Thessalonians that they were destined to suffer affliction. Peter exhorted the Christians... As we saw earlier, when he said, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as, as if something strange were happening. We're told, 1 Peter 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, Jesus expressed the basic entrance requirement for Christianity as this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And you know he wasn't talking about putting on a cross necklace. 
He meant be ready to be executed and suffer in the most gruesome way imaginable. Any person who assumes coming to Christ will guarantee a life of rainbows and lollipops is just frankly ignorant of what the Bible actually teaches. And the Bible's honesty about our suffering, I think, is no more, no more apparent than in the story of the life of Job. In particular, Job chapter 1. And I've broken down this chapter into four parts to help us. First, the first five verses describe Job's ideal life. Then in verses 6 through 12, his faith is testified by God. It's then tested by Satan. And then finally, his faith is proved genuine in verses 20 to 22. Let's look first of all at Job's ideal life as it's described in verses 1 through 5. The verse starts, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Note just the way the the verse begins. There was a man. That's important because by this introduction, it tells us there's nothing supernatural about Job. He's just an ordinary guy. Now, he does have remarkable faith, but it's, he's just like you or me. He's not even the God-man like Christ. He's just an ordinary guy. And we're told he's from Uz. As I mentioned last week, Uz was uh, in the area of Edom, which is just south of the Dead Sea, north of Arabia. And we're given his name. The name Job, interestingly enough, means enemy. And that's significant because that's one of the questions that the book's actually going to ask. Is Job an enemy of God? Because it looks like it. His friends are going to more or less accuse him of such. Job's going to wonder. But his character is affirmed shortly thereafter in four phrases. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. He's blameless. Now, this, this doesn't mean that Job was sinless. But it does mean that there was no accusation that could be brought against him. He was above reproach. He was wholeheartedly trying to please God with his life. There was was no secret sin in his life that somebody could point out and ruin his reputation. The phrase upright is complimentary to blameless. It means, again, there's nothing in his life of which he was ashamed. He could stand up straight. He could hold his head high. Not because he was arrogant, but because he had nothing to hide. He was confident. And that's why later on, he holds fast to his integrity when his friends say, well, you must have done something to displease God or else none of this would fall upon you. If, if he were to confess he had committed him sin, had some sin, he would, he would be lying. He, he knew of nothing. Nothing that he needed to confess. It also says that he feared God, turned away from evil. And these, these two expressions are often correlated in Scripture. And that's because the one who fears God, if a person really fears God, they will turn away from evil. In fact, it's that action that shows the state of one's fear of the Lord. 
The one who fears God is, is again, more concerned about God's judgment than man's opinion. And therefore, when they're faced with temptation, they do what they know to be God's will. Because they care about what God thinks, most of all. Now, that, that phrase, fearing the Lord, is something often evangelicals struggle with. And they want to temper it. And they'll say something like, well, it just means to have a high respect. Well, to fear does have... It does have the idea of respect, certainly, but it means to fear. Fear that comes, that with that fear comes great respect. Again, just imagine that uh, you were followed by your boss for a whole workday. You would uh, presumably do the best job that you possibly could. Because if you were to slack off or you were to... To, to waste time and do what you knew you shouldn't be doing while they were watching, that would certainly show you you weren't afraid of losing your job and you certainly didn't respect your boss's wishes. Well, this is similar to what it means to fear the Lord. The one who fears the Lord knows that God is always watching and that, we, that He has a standard that He expects us to follow. And when we go against that standard, we are showing we have no fear of Him. At least in that moment. Job had such a fear of God and constantly turned away from evil. And the author's purpose in this brief introduction of Job is, is to make it clear to us that Job indeed was truly a godly man. Because we need to understand and not second guess Job's righteousness in what follows. Because even to us, we're going to assume, well, there's no way God would let all this happen if Job hadn't done something wrong. But the point is, God does allow it. God purposes it, as we'll see. Even though Job is a righteous, godly man. Job, of course, will err with his tongue later on and he'll be rebuked by the Lord for it. But this is not until after his friends continue to press upon him to acknowledge his secret sin that he hasn't committed. But Job, in many ways, is the ideal man. In fact, he has the ideal life. That's actually the point of verses two and three and what follows. It says he has seven sons and three daughters point is he has the ideal sized family seven sons one for each day of the week in fact the numbers seven and three are are, are numbers in scripture that that um, symbolize perfection or completeness he's also very prosperous look at verse three his possessions were seven thousand sheep three thousand camels five hundred yoke of oxen five hundred female donkeys many servants the point is not just that he owns a ton, but notice what he owns. In the ancient Near East, sheep provided textiles, clothing from their wool. And the oxen were used for farming. They were the ancient tractors of the world. Donkeys were used for general labor. They were like the pickup trucks or automobiles. And camels would be used for shipping. Again, they were like the cargo ships. The ships of the desert, trains, or 18-wheelers of the ancient world. So Job wasn't only wealthy. The point is he has a whole multifaceted industry that he's in charge of. 
that he oversees. And of course, that's why he has so many servants to help run these industries. And then notice he's further described as the greatest of all the people of the East. And I should note also that almost everybody this time lived in the East. I mean, there was certainly many people in Africa, as in Egypt, but probably less people in Europe and probably very, very few in our continent. So Job was incredibly wealthy. He had more wealth than kings. I mean, the equivalent today would be owning all of Amazon, all of Tesla, all of Walmart. And not just being the CEO of those companies, but owning them completely. And Job, again, wasn't just immensely wealthy. He was extremely godly. And that's demonstrated in verses 4 and 5, as it also gives us a little more insight into his family. It was a family full of feasting and joy. It was, it was like Christmas on a daily basis and on a weekly cycle. The, the, the kids would love to get together. These weren't raves like the world would have. These are more like family reunions where the, 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 the children loved one another so much. They just wanted to celebrate life together on a daily basis. And each sibling hosted, at least to the males, and then they, invite, and, and then they would serve all the other children And then they would also enjoy being served as they would go to each son's house. And they would do this on a weekly basis, daily, weekly, yearly basis. It was constant feasting and enjoyment in one another's company. It's really, it's kind of like a picture of what the ideal church would look like. But even more so, it's actually a picture of what Eden should have been like. Enjoying the fruits of one's labor seven days a week and then an offering up of sacrifice. And Job, like the ideal Adam, served as a sort of high priest overall through his weekly sacrifices that he would offer up as each weekly cycle came to conclusion. And there's no evidence that he was that his children had sin in the way that he had feared, but that's actually the point. Even though these were godly kids that loved one another, he just wanted to make absolutely certain they had done nothing, which tells us something about Job's heart too. The reason the kids loved one another so much is because Job loved his kids more than anything else in the world. They were his most prized possession. He owned everything, but there was nothing that compared to his children. And that's very important that we recognize that. His life was the most ideal life anyone has ever lived. The best since man was kicked out of the garden. That is until verse 6. Or as you know, things take a dramatic turn when Job's faith is testified. The setting of where Job's godliness receives public testimony is in the throne room of heaven. And it's actually God who testifies to all the angels of Job's remarkable godliness and faith. And he testifies in particular to Satan. 
And I think it's notable because it's one thing to have a reputation for godliness. It's another thing for God himself to label you as upright, blameless, fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. But this is God's testimony to Job's faith. And it's this testimony that leads to the testing of Job's faith in all the calamities that are about to fall in. Notice first the the phrase in verse 6. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Now, this, this sounds like the angels, which is what the sons of God refers to. It sounds like the angels are coming to show up and just show off, like show and tell or something. But actually, that word to present themselves means that they have been summoned to his court. They're there to bear witness to this heavenly court's proceedings. So it's, it's really more like they've been summoned to jury duty. Only one angelic being is addressed, though, in all that have been summoned, and that's Satan. Which in Hebrew means the adversary or the accuser. Satanas means the adversary. The accuser. In other words, he's going to fittingly serve as the prosecuting attorney in this trial. And this is what's behind the question in verse 7. When God asks him, from where do you come? And Satan says that he's been roaming about. Now, this, this doesn't mean that he's been just wandering around aimlessly looking for something to do. No The word actually means to hunt, to search out. This is where Peter derives his description of Satan as your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Satan's doing here. He's looking for somebody to take down. He's hunting, which is why God then says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Now, consider the context. Satan's looking for somebody to hurt, and God is the one that brings up Job. And he says, look it, Job is upright, blameless, fears me, and turns away from evil. God knows what Satan's been doing, which is why he summoned him to appear. The idea here is, set your focus on Job. If you're looking to take down one of my servants, why don't, why don't you try your luck on the best one that I got? I mean, just, this would be like Jason coming across a mountain lion out in his woods and saying, oh, have you, have you taken a notice at my sheep? They're big and plump. I bet you haven't had mutton in a while. God's not reacting, notice, to Satan. He's leading these proceedings. And notice even it's not that it's always God speaking and Satan answering. God doesn't answer Satan. And that's purposeful. We need to recognize that God is totally in the driver's seat on everything that's happening here. Nothing's shocking him. In fact, he's designing all of this. It's very purposeful. And again, notice that God highlights Job's character to Satan. 
Again, it suggests that what Satan's hunting for was someone that he could use to discredit God's goodness and righteousness. Because God is suggesting Job is the best person to be tested. Who could be better? God essentially is saying, Job essentially worships me. He truly worships me. To which Satan, of course, then responds, well, that's no surprise. Because you bless him with everything. You have a hedge around his life. You protect him. The only reason Job worships you, Yahweh, is because of what you give him. In reality, you are a means to stuff. You take away that stuff and he'll curse you to his face. And it's easy to overlook the logic behind Satan's accusation because it makes so much sense. But as we'll see, it demonstrated throughout the rest of this book, that logic is highly satanic. What's the evil logic here? The logic is God curses those who curse him and he blesses those who bless him. It's this principle of divine retribution. Good things are going to happen to good people and bad things are going to happen to bad people. And this is the most elementary principle in the world, right? In fact, it's what almost every worldly religion is established on this principle. Be a good person, you'll be blessed. Be a bad person, you'll be rejected and condemned. Contrast this theory of God, again, which is the principle behind every other religion, with what God says about himself in Exodus 34. When God announces his name to Israel, his character, his glory. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, children's children, to the third and fourth generation. God's saying, I am defined primarily by my love and mercy and grace. Now that doesn't deny my justice. I will be just and demonstrate my justice. But I am primarily a merciful God. Not just one who expects talionic justice. And we need to recall this proclamation of God's character by himself in that it, re, it happens right after the golden calf incident. Right? Right after God had given the law and they had had this covenant ceremony where, the, where both Israel and God covenant together to, that they were going to be faithful to the covenant. And then just days after that covenant was made, Israel shatters it and breaks Almost every rule of the Ten Commandments. Again, this would be like a husband and wife getting married and on the night of their wedding committing adultery. I mean, what would you expect an almighty, powerful God to do in that moment? If you, if you embrace 
this divine principle of retribution. This principle of divine retribution. What would you expect? Immediate elimination. But that's not what God proclaims. And we need to see this because this is one of the major themes behind what's going on in the book of Job. This is, this is the, what's behind all three of these friends that come and accuse Job. That's their philosophy. They think they have God in a box. They understand how God works. They understand that God's plan for the universe and who He is. And Satan wants them to think that. And they essentially, in their accusations, serve Satan and Satan's philosophy. And notice that Satan actually asks God to afflict Job in in this verse. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. But God's not going to do it. God's not going to do it because it would be wrong, it would be cruel. He's not going to afflict Job unjustly, but he will allow Satan freedom to test his hypothesis with one caveat. He can attack Job's body, which shows us that Satan has an immense amount of power, but he's on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do. And God allows Satan to afflict Job in order to prove that Job indeed does truly worship God, that God is right and God has true worshipers. Now recognize that in giving Satan this freedom, though, it's not just Job who's on trial. In fact, it's not Job who's primarily on trial. God is actually in all of this putting himself on trial. Because if God is wrong, if after all these afflictions befall Job then Satan will be able to say to God, you're wrong. You're a failure. You created all these men to worship you. And even the one that you could find the best, he failed when all I needed to do is take everything away from me. These people don't, your creation don't worship you. You're a total failure. That's the real trial in the book of Job. God is putting himself on trial to show us the kind of God that he is so that we would trust him and worship him. So there's way more going on here than just a test of Job's faith. There are mind-blowing layers of purpose behind this summons to God's courtroom. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And this brings us to Job's faith being tested. In verse 13, it gives us the setting for the disasters that afflict Job. It happens on a day when all of his children are feasting. It happens to be on the day of the Feasting in the oldest son's house, which means it's the best day, the best house, the best party. It's at the worst possible time. In other words, now you would naturally expect the narrator to then discuss what happens to Job's family, but 
He doesn't. The other things happen first. The house doesn't collapse till verse 19. The last calamity to befall Job. And the reason for this is because Satan is choosing to destroy last what Job cares about most. He's trying to maximize Job's pain. And this intent is demonstrated by the fact that the calamities happen in immediate succession, almost simultaneously, rather than over an extended period of time. And again, we need to keep in mind who's behind these afflictions. Satan is doing this, not God. Although God has given him permission to do so, but it's Satan. And and I say that because we need to recognize also the awesome power that Satan still possesses. He is, after all, the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that directs all these Chaldeans, all the Sabaeans to attack. He's the one that can stir up this great lightning storm that destroys all of Joe's sheep. And this tornado that destroys his son's house. He has the power to direct kings and nations to afflict great evils. And he can do so with absolute precision in his timing. Satan is no joke. He is real. He is powerful. But he is on a leash. And notice also the strategy behind Satan's attacks. He's not only afflicting horrific devastation on Job, but he's clearly making it look as if God is the one doing it. Because who else has this kind of power? This kind of sovereignty to direct all of these afflictions in this way. With this succession of the afflictions even. The fact that only one messenger and all the attacks survive just to bring the bad news. And also the nature of the attacks. And one of the servants said it was the, quote, fire of God that came down. He doesn't say lightning, which is what he's referring to. But he's saying, he's recognizing this comes from God. He did it. I mean, all of these afflictions look like they have God's fingerprints all over them. God is getting framed. Clearly. And he's allowing it. God is allowing himself to be completely set up by Satan. And all this demonstrates, again, there aren't accidents. There's purposeful design in this. I mean, just like we see the design in all of creation. There there must be a creator because who else could create a world so intricate? Well, Similarly, there is clear divine design, at least you would assume, in these afflictions. So Satan's not merely interested in hurting Job. He's not simply interested in being cruel to humanity. He's trying to undermine humanity's confidence in the nature and character of their sovereign God. That's Satan's ultimate aim. He's trying to attack the trustworthiness of God. If you can cut off people's confidence in God, He wins. That's all He needs to do. That's all Satan wants to do in your life. 
Just get you to trust yourself, your impressions, your power. Lean on your own understanding. He's got you. If he can just get you to doubt what God has said. To doubt God's power or his goodness in your life. And you see how this intent reverberates in the latter chapters of the book in the council of Job's friends. Again, this is what Satan is after in all of his attacks upon our lives. He wants us to turn away from God. Or and lean on any kind of human wisdom. Satan loves to break down trust. Right? Remember his first words in the garden? Did God really say? You will not surely die. All he needs to do is to get us to start doubting his God's word and Satan has us. And so after all this has occurred, Satan looks like he has presented an open and shut case of evidence in framing God. He was probably licking his chops, anxiously awaiting, well, what's Job going to say? Well, I just can't wait to see Well, that brings us to what happens next. When Job's faith is proved. And Job's responses to to Satan's attacks are both expected and unexpected. As you expect, I mean, he's indescribably overwhelmed with grief. And that's why he rips his garments and he shaves his head. Just expressions of inexpressible sorrow. He's he's expressing outwardly what he feels inwardly, torn and naked and ugly. And we would expect him to react this way. But what we wouldn't expect is how he what comes out of his mouth, what he does next. He falls to the ground and worships. Consider his words again. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, Yahweh is taken away. Blessed, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it shows us what was Job's heart. I mean, Job's statements directly prove Satan's accusation wrong because after losing everything, everything that he might have been tempted to worship, he still worships the only one who deserves worship. And only a true worshiper would respond this way. One who loves God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, only a true worshiper would worship this way. Satan was wrong. God was right. And notice in in his words, Job acknowledges that he doesn't hold on to any ontological right to any of those things. Like that's the point of what he's saying. I don't deserve anything of what God had previously given to me. And so if it goes, that's just He recognized everything he had was ultimately a gift. He came into the world weak and naked. 
And he's willing to leave in exactly the same way. And Job doesn't just worship God again for what he gives, but because of who God is. And, and that's seen in, in that phrase, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Blessed, happy, content, worthy of honor and glory. Consider that in Job's circumstances. What Job is saying is, I don't have a right to be happy. I don't need to be happy. I don't need to be at peace. I don't need to have all that I have. But he deserves to be happy. He deserves to be praised. He deserves to be worshipped. He deserves honor and glory because only God deserves those things. Which tells us every ounce of peace and glory and honor that any of us has ever experienced is a gift from God. Job gets it. Which is why he says what he says. Only God's glory matters. And this proves God was right and Satan was wrong. Job's response is very similar to Jesus's in Gethsemane. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Apostle Peter Likewise, calls us to a similar response. If you would look there again at what we read earlier. Verse 6 of chapter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, because... He cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the gracious God, the merciful God, the loving God, the faithful God, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen, Father. You alone deserve all glory and honor and power, which is why we love to say, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be praised. And we can say that because we believe it, because you've changed our hearts, you've opened our eyes to believe these things. And yet, Lord, even as we declare them to be true, we also acknowledge we struggle. Lord, we so want to be people who would worship you like this when... We encounter hangnails and stubbed toes or when we lose our children or our jobs 
or our wives. God, we want to be such worshipers. But we acknowledge that in ourselves, in our flesh, we can't. And so figuratively, we fall on our face and ask You to make us such Christians. In Christ's name.